All right, welcome back, everyone. It's another edition of West Virginia Talk with James and Jerry. I'm James. I'm Jerry. And we're in a special little town in West Virginia today, Fort Ashby, and we're at Ashby's Fort, and we're here with Randy Crane, curator of the Fort Museum and uh, the Friends of Fort Ashby. Yeah, yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being on for us. Sure. So this fort was built in 1755. Who gave the orders to build this? A uh, man you might know the name of, uh, George Washington. George Washington, the very first president, famous general. That's right. incredible to me. Absolutely incredible that something yeah. within our state was erected due to the fact that a former president he gave had the called order. for it. Yeah. He spent a lot of time in this area. In fact, when he was 16, he was uh, an apprentice to learn how to become a surveyor, and he surveyed the very property we're, we're sitting on. So Wow. So he was very familiar with it, and I think that's one of the reasons why he designated this to be a spot for one of the first two forts to be built. Uh, our sister fort, Fort Cock, which is located in Headsville, which is just uh, about 12 miles from here, um, he gave the order for that one as well. Okay, so why did he give the orders to build a fort specifically where we are? Well, uh, so this was a few months after... Braddock's defeat, which was Gen English General Edward Braddock, came over with a pretty sizable army from Great Britain, and the idea was to take his his army to Fort Duquesne, which is in modern-day Pittsburgh, uh, and capture that fort because it was a really strategic area for both the French and the English. So Braddock went up there and suffered a, a disastrous defeat, just phenomenally lopsided. He, he lost close to 900 men, and the French and English lost uh, something in the 20s. So, mm. anyway, Washington was along on that battle as an aide to General Braddock. He survived, obviously, and led everybody back. There weren't that many to lead back, um, unfortunately, but, or at least unfortunately for the English. And shortly after that, he was made commander of the Virginia Regiment by the, the governor. He was only 22 at the time or 23, but can you imagine wow. being that young and being with that kind of responsibility? So what they wanted to do was erect 55 forts or a string of forts from the Maryland border all the way down to North Carolina. This was part of Virginia back at that time. And so this was their frontier, definitely. I really didn't go much further west. I mean, the, the state did, but they're not people-wise. Right. So uh, they wanted to protect the frontier until they could figure out whether another army was going to come over or whether they had to do it themselves or what the story was. So they, this was a defensive fort, as all of the, the, the string of forts were uh, that were built. So there was a, there were a lot of forts from the French and Indian War in this area. Yeah. We're, how close were we to New France? Well, or Canada, as we call it today. Right. Uh, if you're traveling on foot, it's it's probably, or even if you're traveling on horseback, you're you're talking a, a couple weeks uh, at least. Um, you know, and the border is a little fluid. Uh, if if you go due north from here and. Uh, follow the shores of Lake Erie, you'll run into Canada pretty quickly. It was pretty wild territory back then, all Indian-dominated. So New France wasn't near here? No. No, okay. So the Indians and the French, how many times did they attack this fort? So the Indians were the primary 
opponents in this part of the French and Indian War, in this region. Uh, and there was a Delaware Indian war chief, Bemino, who just prior to the fort being built, he attacked all the settlements along Patterson Creek and all the way up to Headsville, which is where the second fort was built as well. Those were all the settlements that Washington had surveyed and laid out and later people had built on them. And then in the spring of the next year, spring of 1756, uh, in April, Bemino came back and demanded that Ashby surrender his fort. But Ashby stood up to him and said, no, I'll fight you for it, but I'm not going to just give it to you. And they went back and forth a couple of times, and they both knew that Bemino had no chance attacking from the outside of a well-defended fort, even though he claimed he had 500, but that was an exaggeration. He really had, he probably had two to 300 men with him, which is sizable, especially compared to 32 men that Ashby had. But Ashby was behind a wooden fort, and, you know, Bemino's men were out, out in the open, it was very open, too, because all the trees had been cut down to build the fort and feed the fire and so forth. So uh, it wouldn't have been a fair fight. It, in, in fact, statistically, he would not have won at all, Bemino. So Ashby brought out a dram of rum. They both drank to each other, and then off Bemino went. And uh, it's kind of interesting. He went a few miles east of here. He followed Patterson Creek, and he found a supply fort uh, that was located there at the time. That was really for Fort Cumberland. Um, Fort Cumberland had outgrown its walls and they needed to store stuff. Um, and so they built that little fort right on the Potomac River. And they just, if they needed anything, they just brought it back on a barge. Was that Fort Sellers? Yes, exactly. Okay. Very good. Now, did we cover how the fort got its name? How it became Fort Ashby? No. Quick question, though, before that. How long did it take to build it? Ah, no more than six weeks. Six weeks to build the entire thing. Which is incredible. Washington ordered a fort built that had 100-foot curtain walls, which are the, the walls in between the bastions, which is a pretty sizable fort. When we did archaeology here, we discovered that the walls, the curtain walls, are only 33 feet long, so a third of the length that Washington had ordered. The bastions were still large, though, in, in relative scale. So we, we, it, that brought a bunch of questions up. Why did they make it so much smaller? Well, I think the obvious, there's two obvious reasons. They started building this in late October of 1755. Mm. Winter was coming, and they didn't want to be tr trying to dig trenches and frozen ground, snow coming down on them. It's just a bad time of year to try to build a fort. They only had 32 men, so just digging enough dirt to fill the bastions they only had probably three or four shovels amongst them. It would have taken months to do that. You have to remember, there's no John Deere tractors or anything like that. It's just pure manpower and, and shovels and picks. So they, they came up with a brilliant idea. They made the interior of the fort much smaller, which would have eliminated the possibility of them building barracks or officer's quarters. They did manage to put the powder magazine uh, in there, but what they did, it was novel at the time, instead of filling the bastions with dirt, uh, and they would fill those with dirt so that they had a platform to stand on so they could shoot out over the walls, which were 12 to 15 feet high. So 
instead of doing that, they said, let's just, we'll put in a central wall and then we'll just cut planks and lay them across uh, and make a shooting platform. And then that will give us a ceiling. They've already got the walls. So you've got, a, you know, a, it's rough, but it's, it's a good quarters for, for men to sleep in. In fact, it gave them so much space that they didn't need any buildings at all on the inside of the fort. They ended up putting the powder magazine in the fourth bastion along with their trash pit. We just had archaeology on that done last summer, and that was great. You wouldn't think a trash pit would be that much fun, but that's where you find all kinds of goodies. Mid-1700s trash may be interesting. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But it told us a lot about how they lived and what, what they used, uh, you know, just little things like the type of dishes and glassware and the types of things they ate. We found different animal bones, so that gives you a good clue of what they were eating. They actually ate pretty well. Washington supplied them with a hundred head of cattle at the beginning of uh, 1755. That's going to last them a while. I also gave them a lot of flour so they could make bread or biscuits or hardtack or what have you. They had to have molasses, right? That was a staple then, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and and rum. And there's some funny stories about that if you if you want me to go there. But um, <laughs> But they had plenty to eat. They also supplemented that with deer. We found there's turkey and rabbit and all kinds of things. So they would go out and hunt uh, and find things uh, on the land. And since these plantations had just been destroyed, they, they probably were able to get some crops or some some things to eat from that as well. Some residual from the right. former occupants. Right, right. Jerry asked earlier about the name, the namesake. Sure, Ashby. Well, it was named after John Ashby. He was the captain of this fort. And that was pretty common. When Washington wrote his letters, and we're so grateful for those because we wouldn't know hardly anything about this fort without his letters. But he would write to all of his commanders, and he would then later write letters to other people saying, oh, uh, Ashby's fort did this, Edward's fort did that. And they're, they're all named after usually the captain's uh uh, that were commanding them. Now, his wife lived with him, right? She sure did. And uh, she was a pistol, apparently. Um, <laughs> so they got the fort built by the 1st of December of 1755. Before the end of the month, George Washington wrote a pretty scurrilous or nasty letter to John admonishing him for the behavior of his wife selling rum to the men. Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to put everything in context. Rum was a pretty big staple for everybody back then, not just the military. But if you, now, if you lived in a place like Williamsburg, Virginia, and you had a well, you could drink the water. And they knew that it was safe. They knew also that if you drank water out of a stream or a river, it was a gamble. Uh, you know, the Paris, now they didn't know why. They didn't know about germs and things like that. They didn't know then. about boiling it, too. Right. So if you just drank out of the river, chances are you're going to pay for it in a short, short <laughs> right, while. Right, right. So, um, so to, to work with that, the population as a whole was drinking alcohol. Now, a lot of it was watered down. Like, for example, in the military, they would issue... Uh, rum that was called grog. Well, grog is rum that's watered down. So it, it gave them something to drink, but it didn't impair them. Now, that doesn't mean that some soldiers 
didn't go out of their way to get impaired, just like people do today, I suppose. And it, it seemed like Jane's mission was to help them uh, get impaired because she was selling them straight rum. Washington didn't appreciate that. He was a pretty stickler, pretty severe in terms of discipline, um, even though he was young. And maybe that's because he was young. He was he didn't want things to get out of hand with his own troops. So he insisted that she stop selling rum And apparently, she was also the sower of sedition, in Washington's words, which means that uh, men were not happy here at Fort Ashby, and a lot of them deserted. Now, they didn't desert to go home because they didn't like the war. They knocked on the doors of other forts in the area and asked if they could serve there. And that tells me that between the two of them, John and Jane Ashby, there wasn't very good leadership and were very good discipline. So it's interesting. I, I don't from everything that I've been able to read, which isn't much because we wish there would be so much more information, but he did not keep a diary. So much of most of what we get is through Washington's letters. Um, while you're speaking, I keep looking around the walls and just everything on the inside of this. It's it's original, right? So the building that we're sitting in right now is a barracks building for what we believe is the third fort that was built on the site. And we determined that because we did some dendrochronology on the walls, which is a pretty fancy word for drilling a a hole through the the logs in in the log building. And that gives you a core uh, that, that shows the tree rings. And what the scientists do is they compare those tree rings to known trees from that time period that are in this area it's important that they compare something that's that's similar and they the dendrochronologist was able to determine that these logs were all cut down in the fall of 1783 well they got it to the season to the season which amazed me too i'm I'm glad you picked up on that because (laughs) that's pretty accurate so this was built really at the tail end of the revolutionary war we don't think it was built for the revolutionary war we believe, uh, although we're, we're searching for more documentation, but we believe that it was because of the continuing Indian wars gotcha. that were in this area. This was still the wild frontier of, at the time, uh, the United States. Now, you mentioned Delaware, but they weren't the only tribe, right? Correct. There were, Delaware and Shawnee were the predominant Indians in this area at that time. Delaware Indians actually originated in Delaware and Southeast Pennsylvania, New Jersey, in that area. But they were pushed out with the, you know, colonization of those colonies and ended up in this area prior to uh, the 1750s. They kind of were pushed out of this area as well. I mentioned Bemino earlier. He was that Delaware Indian war chief. He actually lived nearby. He lived before the French and Indian War. He lived along uh, the south branch of the Potomac. Let me ask you something real quick, because you triggered a memory when you said Shawnee and Delaware. Weren't they the two tribes that fought at the base of Hanging Rock going towards Romney? Were they the two tribes that fought there? I believe they were. Okay. And so, But Bemino wasn't from that spot. No. Well, no, he... He lived close to the trough, so it's not far. Oh, okay. Not far, but he was all by himself, uh, and he got along with his English neighbors. There weren't that many people in that area, 
but he got along with them, no problems at all. But once the war started, all Indian tribes had to decide who they, you know, were they going to align with someone, with one of the powers, the British or the French? Most of them did, and most of them uh, aligned with the French. Prior to the war, they got along with both uh, to some degree, but at the same time, the English colonials were pushing westward. They wanted land. The French really didn't want the land as much. They just wanted to trade with the Indians. Mm -hmm. The Indians had access to something as valuable as oil or gold today, and that was uh, fur. And they would send the fur back to Europe because the Europeans had hunted out almost all of the fur that was already there. They used the fur for clothing, for, for hats, for blankets, things to keep warm. Um, and so the French were only intrusive to where they wanted what was on the land, but the British wanted right, both. Right. And the Indians were happy to trade fur because they, in, re in return, they would get European goods that they couldn't make themselves. Mostly metal things. Axes and knives and guns. And so... Everybody thinks, oh, the Indians just shot bows and arrows. Well, they did, but they also had they had just the same weapons that the British and the French did. So they're, they're, they were not any weaker in that regard. They had traded uh, things for, to get those items. Now, I've noticed, like I said, inside this museum here, that you have a lot of mannequins stationed. Can you tell us a little bit about the mannequin displays that you have and sure. what people will see if they come? Sure. In this building... It, it was important to us to, to tell the stories of some of the people that were involved here. Um, we didn't want to just make it a boring history lesson of dates and numbers, you know, so many people died or some whatever. I mean, that's important, but we wanted to tell a little bit about the people themselves that were here. So we have uh, mannequins that represent Bemino because uh, he was an important part of, of this story. And he's kind of scary looking. He's got his war paint on, and uh, he looks pretty fierce. And that that really, you know, especially for kids, that, that helps tell the story. And they ask a lot of questions, which is great, because right. we want to share that information. We have displays of John and Jane Ashby. And it's not just them, and we tell the stories, but also the clothing that they wore. They were pretty well-to-do. They weren't the elite in the colonies, but they were just below that level. They had money, so they wore terrific clothes, and uh, they had, you know, all, all that you could really ask for, especially out here. And then uh, right behind me here is Daniel Morgan. He's an incredibly important piece of history in general, not just in the French and Indian War, but later he became a great general during the Revolution, had a vital part of helping with the battle at Saratoga, and his tactics were so cool because he had picked up while he was here at, in, during the French and Indian War. He watched the Indians and what they did, and which was so different from how the Europeans or the, the colonies, who were Europeans really, they just moved over here, but the English and the French would fight in big long lines and point guns at each other in a field somewhere. And the Indians kind of laughed at that. They were like, why do you want to kill each other and know that you're going to die. Um, they preferred to hide behind a tree and take a shot and then run to another tree and take another shot, which today seems really obvious. And common sense. Common right. sense. But back then, you know, it was part of tradition and part of uh, valor and honor and stuff like that. So 
But anyway, right? It's it was it was improper to do it, and the Revolutionary War. One of the big reasons why we overcame the British was guerrilla warfare, which they frowned upon. Right. Well, a good example: Daniel Morgan using those tactics, and now being in power. First, everybody in his regiment had to have a rifle. Well, the the vast majority of troops back in the Revolutionary War did not have a rifle; they had muskets.、Hmm. Now, what's the difference? Well, a musket is sort of like a shotgun. So when the ball goes down the barrel, it kind of bounces around, and whatever direction it's going when it leaves the barrel, that's that's where that ball is going. Almost like a knuckleball pitch. Right. So not really accurate. You don't even aim a musket. You just point it in the general direction <laughs> and hope it hits something. Now, a rifle. The only difference between a rifle and a musket is the rifle riflings. It's got like a helix. Yeah, a little twist that's in the inside of the barrel that spins the ball, so that centrifugal force keeps it spinning even after it leaves the the, the barrel. I'm going to make a really bad comparison,、uh, kind of like fletchings on an arrow. It would cause it to spin. Yes, and it would be more true. Yes, exactly. So the range of a musket was typically under 60 yards. The range of a rifle. Uh, was three to four hundred yards. Wow,、uh, a much much greater、uh, capability. So all of his men, and he wouldn't even even if you had a rifle, Morgan wouldn't necessarily take you. He would go out. He would recruit people, usually at taverns, and he would go out back and he would set up a target and he would have the 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 men shoot at targets. He would only take the ones who could really shoot. So、um, so that gave him. One advantage. The second advantage was something that drove George Washington crazy. He would go around the flank of the the British, and then have his men start picking off officers. Well, that just wasn't done back then. That was just cruel and not gentlemanly at all. Right. But Washington put up with it because Morgan was so effective. If you pick off all the officers. The men were trained to listen to the officers. If they weren't there, they didn't know what to do. It's very different than today's army, right? So it wasn't just because they were high-ranking officers. Without officers, there was no order. That's right. And so all the inevitably, if that happened, the men all turned and ran. So,、uh, so they were very victorious at that battle, and most of the battles that he was involved with. He took a break in the middle of the war,、uh, went home. He was tired. But they called him back, and he came,、uh, and they, he was sent down south to battle、uh, Bannister Tarleton, who was giving the South fits. Tarleton was kind of doing、uh, what the Indians do too. He was burning、uh, homes and taking any anything of value away from the homes,、uh, burning everything in sight. But he met his match with Morgan. Morgan planned. He was kind of. Leading him along, and he led him to this place called Cowpens, and it was literally because it was for, for cattle. <laughs> <Right> . But <laughs> the the landscape was such that there were hills and dales and spots where you could hide divisions of men without being seen. So he he sort of brought Tarleton over a hill down into a swale where there were men on either side that just demolished his army. To the point where he had to retreat, taking 
the few men that he had left, they, they captured over 800 as well. So wow. it was a huge defeat. And they retreated to Yorktown. And you know the rest of the story after that. Yeah. So. Got a question. And sure. It's a, it's a multi-faceted question, so bear with me. The J- Jerry mentioned, the, like, the clothed avatars in here and who they are. Yes. What gets my heart fluttering is the relics that you have on display. So are the relics actual items found around the fort through archaeology? Are they donated or both? Uh, How does that a little work? bit of both. The vast majority were found here. We have all kinds of really cool things available. Um, lots of musket balls and flints and pieces of guns and glassware and pottery and things that help tell the story of how how they lived life inside of a fort. We also have had things donated. We have a, a beautiful fowler, a, a musket, it's a smooth bore, that was donated to us, and it's from the time period. So it's very much, it, it could easily have been used by someone, you know, serving in a fort like this. We also have something that is priceless to me. We have an arrow, a Cherokee arrow from the time period. Wow. From the 1750s. Now, it was not found here. That was donated to us uh, by a family in Virginia. The Cherokee are from that part of the country, uh, Virginia, North Carolina. Originally. Yeah, originally, yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're one of two tribes that sided with the English. Everybody else sided with the French. The Cherokee and the Catawba both sided with the English. So uh, it's in tremendous condition for being 260-some years old, whatever it is. One of the neat things about it, too, from that time period until even recently, Indians were always sort of looked down upon as as second-class citizens, as not intelligent, and so forth. And that just could not be further from the truth. And this arrow is a great example of that. Instead of using an arrowhead, which most arrows did um, have an arrowhead, uh, they they took something that they could buy for pennies uh, from the English. They they took cut nails, which are the same type of nail that that are in these floors that we're sitting on here. Are these original nails? Yeah. Oh my. Yeah. And so. A cut nail has a rectangular head. And what they did is they cut a rectangular slot in the end of that arrow. They pushed it in, and the arrow is made from a reed. So it's a little bit soft on the inside. So they pushed it in, and then they twisted. And that locked it in place. It took five seconds to do that. Whereas an arrowhead... Now, almost all Native Americans were really good at making arrowheads, but it still took time. You had to nap flint from with with steel uh, or, or some other hard object and it would usually take a, a good 20 minutes to make a, an arrow if you knew what you were doing probably take me like four days but <laughs> but if you know what you're doing it, it's about 20 or 30 minutes but why do that if you can just take a cut nail which you can buy a bag full for pennies and then just boom you're, be done you're, be done with it and it still was very effective. It would pierce. It would, it would go right through you. So yeah. well, they did digs, and <clears throat> are they still doing them? Yes, um, I think we probably only have one or two left. We, we've done the vast majority of the fort, and that's over about a twenty-year time period. 
And our archaeologist, Dr. Stephen McBride, is coming back again this summer, I believe. I don't have the exact dates yet. But he and his wife, who's also an archaeologist, have been just terrific to us. Um, so every year they've come for about a week and, and concentrated on certain parts of the fort, found all kinds of wonderful things. So he's coming back to do one more sweep of the inside area of the fort. He actually does not expect to find a lot because the living areas were inside the bastions, mm-hmm. but he wants to do inside the square area of the fort. Uh, so we'll see. Maybe something will turn up that, that'll be really neat. I feel like we have 95% of the information that we desired from from his digs. Um, and, and they've proven a lot of things wrong, like the size of the fort and all sorts of things, So, which is good. We want to know honestly what happened. Um, just like this building, the one that we're sitting in, wasn't there at the time. Everybody thought that it it was, including some of us, but some of us had suspicions that really wasn't, you know, just being on the outside of the uh, boundaries itself, it wouldn't have survived. So this was part of the third fort and the walls were built around it. Um, part of those walls would have gone across Dan's Run Road here, which, mm-hmm. which goes in front of our building. No telling how big that was. Maybe someday we could do some more digging on that just to find out that. That would be interesting. Just like we want to find out more about this building. When they did their digs, did they ever find skeletal remains or precious metals? The only bones that were found were animals. Okay. Precious metal. We found a lot of lead. That's not so precious. Uh, I'm sure it was then. It was. for Well, yeah, it was if you were a ranger. Uh, you <laughs> needed that. A lot more than gold. <laughs> right. I'm referring to coins is what I'm Oh, oh. Yes, we have found coins. And some of them are just fabulous. We have a, a half pence or a half penny. It was uh, from the time period. King George uh, is on one side, and um, it's in relatively good shape, especially for being buried for you know 250 years or so. There's also pieces of Spanish dollars, and that's fascinating too because <clears throat> that's where a lot of our terminology comes from today. So the Spanish dollar was the only dollar permitted to be cut into pieces to give change. And it was allowed to be done not only in Spain and its territories or colonies, but also here in colonial America. So we found quarters of a, of a coin. That's where the, the term a quarter comes from, a quarter of a dollar. And you can split that. The most you can split these coins into are eighths. So you can have a half, a quarter, or an eighth. And if you have two eighths, they were called two bits. And that's where the term two bits comes from. Okay. It's the same equivalent as a quarter. But these coins were silver, right? Yeah. How did they separate it? Uh, With uh, usually a knife or a hatchet. Wow. Uh, Yeah. It was, um, and sometimes... And it was done by the person who was handling it. So if they needed to give change. Could you see the cashiers nowadays walking into Walmart giving your change? Right. Yeah, you get 50 cents back. Whack, whack, Yeah, just carrying an axe into Walmart. (laughs) Right. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You and I have talked before, and you actually have some things that I lent, right? We do. We have a butt plate from the uh, Brown Bess, which is really cool. 
Did you ever figure out what the initials on the top meant? Honestly, no. Um, I want to say it's where the rifle was made. It could be. It and says it, CM. It, and I still haven't. I found one online that looks like it, but it, they, they had no description of what that meant. I looked and couldn't find anything, so I'm not, I'm not totally sure. And but, I had high hopes that CM stood for Captain Morgan. Ah. But... Uh, I think you dispelled that. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't. He was just a. I guess they would refer to him as a private uh, here. Well, while he was here, right. Later on, became major and then general. So. So, but, and he came back to this place. In fact, I'm sure he was in this building. Uh, now, so let me let me go fast forward here. All right. After the Revolutionary War, the country became a country, and uh, Washington became president. And they had something called the Whiskey Rebellion. Right. That was in Pennsylvania. 1794. And, right. And they, they needed to... Washington felt... So the, there were Pennsylvania farmers who were complaining about having to pay a tax on whiskey. And hadn't we just fought a war to get away from taxes on things like See, I love that. this. I could talk about this all day. Right. This tax was imposed by Alexander Hamilton. Right. Trying to pay off war debts, right? Right. And it's the same exact thing that... So... The French and Indian War, the British ultimately won that, but they had that were huge debts, and the king wanted to, to pay that off. What kind of debts? Well, they had to pay men's salaries. Uh, they had to pay for forts. They had to pay for food and supplies. They had to pay for armies to sail across the Atlantic and fight the French and the Indians. So, and If I'm thinking right, it really affected western Pennsylvania more than eastern Pennsylvania because when farmers grew crops, it took such a long time to get them across the Allegheny Mountains, by the time they would get to eastern PA, they'd be spoiled. So they yeah. had to rely on distilling it to turn it into something right. other than selling it outright. Right, correct. So it affected them way more than it did eastern Pennsylvania. Yeah, I think a lot of people throughout the, the country had the same thoughts, but but the Pennsylvanians were you know more willing to speak out on it. And if you have one a country, you got to pay for it. You've, you've got to be solvent, and you need to be recognized across the world. You also need to uh, have a good armed forces. You, there's a lot of needs that countries have. So, and you you can't do those without money. So he felt strongly about it, and he understood what they were saying, but he he was adamant about it. So only time in, in America's history that. The sitting president went out as the commander in chief in person uh, at a you know what would be a battle. On the way to Pennsylvania, uh, there were several armies that were committed to this, which meant several thousand men against these Pennsylvania farmers. So it was really a big show of force. There was no battle uh, because when the Pennsylvanians saw this, what are you going to do? Right. <laughs> so they pretty much gave up, but. On the way to that, Daniel Morgan was one of the generals that was recalled. He was made major general, and he stopped here on the way because he, you know, very familiar with this place. So now the original fort was probably long gone by then. Wooden forts, when you stick logs in the ground, the, the clock starts ticking and they're going to fall. Right. They just rot away. But this building was here and um, probably much to his pleasure so I'm sure he stayed in it probably with his officers um, and he had something close to I think 1800 men maybe or something like that 
So obviously they couldn't all sleep in here, but they camped around the area. And then I'm sure within a day or so they left um, on their way to Pennsylvania. One of the uh, artifacts that we found here was a presidential button. Oh, man. It's one for Washington. So that would have been during his campaign in his uh, inaugural button. Yeah. there's. I mean, they're rare. Uh, campaign and inaugural buttons yeah. for George Washington really, really sought it right. after. It's not in great shape. It's uh, You can tell what it is. Does it have the W in cursive on it? I've seen a couple of those. Oh, gosh. Uh, I'd have to go back oh, and G- look at it. That, GW, not GW, w, right. Yeah. Um, I believe it is. We can go take a look. But It's in the other building. But... Um, so that's kind of a neat treasure. Now, obviously, that wasn't dropped during while well, Ashby was here. That's long before Washington was president. Uh, but the fact that we found one here, I have to think that someone, from probably from Daniel Morgan's men, mm-hmm. whether it was Morgan himself or someone else, and it dropped off or fell out of a pocket or something like that. And here we, we have it 200-plus years later. And you are strict when it comes to period artifacts oh yeah display we have one or two things in that we do display well like washington's inaugural button we're gonna display that we're we're pretty adamant about that we want we just want to be as authentic as we Mm -hmm. possibly can so how often uh, how often are you open when can people come see all the things that you have on display sure well appreciate you asking um we open we're not open year-round yet. We're working towards that, and we're still all volunteers. So uh, we're open Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays beginning in March all the way through October. So we got you early. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we'll be opening next next week, I guess, uh, which is great. So Fridays and Saturdays are from 10 to 4, and Sundays are noon to 4. We hope to expand that in the near future if we can get more volunteers. If eventually, if we're open enough and and we can make enough through donations and, and through admission, uh, maybe we can hire someone full-time, and that would be awesome. How long can someone that's traveling through expect to spend here? Well, if they have me, it's going to be a long time. <laughs> I, <laughs> I t- I, I've learned a lot from my reading on the history, and I love to share that. So sometimes I'm long-winded, and I try not to be. And I try and judge what people are wanting out of a visit um so you can tell if if people are coming with kids and they're antsy and they just want to know the the basics that's what i give them and if they want more i'll answer all day long but i think a good visit is is probably if you can budget a couple hours i think you can learn a lot and it's it's a really neat peek peek into you know something that we don't really study much in school anymore but yet it was so important to the founding of our country. Yeah, the French and Indian War is a, an oft-overlooked yeah. time period in our country's history. I yeah. mean, it predates our it country's It predates history. our country. And that's probably why the, 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 the schools don't teach it as, or, or put as much focus on it. But boy, it really sets up how our country started. So, I mean, it was part of the Seven Years' War, right? That's correct. Which... Why wasn't that called World War One? It should have been because right. it was the first war that was fought on multiple continents and so forth. And this was just a small part of it. Well, it was a big part of it, really. But both sides put a lot of money and, and effort into it. So it's fascinating to me. I love history too. Obviously, I wouldn't I wouldn't be here if I wasn't interested in that. But 
Is there anything else you'd like to add? You're you're open March, Friday, Saturday, Sundays through what? Through October. October. Right. We like to do not just the the history. We also like to be a cultural center in this in this area. We have a concert series. So we have one every month. There's a couple months where we have two things going on. But uh, you can check our website out, fordashby.org, and find out more about that. Find out more about our hours, if you don't remember, and things like that. It's it's really inexpensive to come visit. It's $5 for adults. Children are free. If you come in a big group, the, the maximum charge is $10. So, All right. Yeah. we it's It's important to us to just share the history and and let people you know kind of learn something they probably didn't know about before you're talking a 268 year history right right. if my my math's right (laughs) i didn't go to college for math (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's 268 it's it's amazing anything you want to add jerry nothing at all like i said well you know what i changed my mind you do have two buildings so people that come to visit the first place they're going to go, just so you know, is going to be the brick building. It'll be to the right. Yes, exactly. That's our visitor center. And in there, um, you'll get a little bit of an overview of the French and Indian War. What was it? What was it fought about? Um, kind of a little bit about who was in it, um, that kind of thing. And there's a short video. It's just 10 minutes uh, that we, we did ourselves. Uh, we'll be updating that soon. And then... You can come outside. We'll show people the outline of the fort. Obviously, the original fort is long gone, but we have the outline of the fort. We explain that. One of our plans is to build or rebuild one of the bastions and one of the curtain walls, which will be really great, especially for kids. Well, even for adults, to give you a sense of the size and scale of it. Make it interactive. Absolutely. Okay, dumb question. For people that don't know, what is a bastion exactly when oh, it comes to a fort? thank you. Good question. Uh, it's sort of a diamond-shaped corner that protrudes out from the corner of the fort. Mm-hmm. Now, before we sign off, I just want to let you know I have some things I'm going to be lending the fort today. Oh, and thank you. I want to ask you... I told you you couldn't give him the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> the half penny you have pictures of, is, is that one that I lent? No. This well, one then I have one out there that I will. Oh, thank you. Yep. This one was actually found here, um, and it's actually on display underneath, okay. underneath the, the picture there. The one so. I found was about six miles from here. Oh, cool. Yeah, and it's weird because I found it and a Civil War breastplate on the very other side of the tree. Like, <sighs> What are the odds of I that? don't know. That's I thought wild. I actually found a can lid because when I turned over the dirt, I, there was an impression of it, but it was a, it was a breastplate. So, wow! Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. That's it. That's in, on display in Romney, the nice. breastplate. So yeah, I'll be giving you one of those. You already have one, but still, yeah. well, thank you. It, it doesn't hurt. Right. Thank so, you. Yeah. Some some time here because I know you want to be strict on the time frame. Yeah. So, some some buttons and stuff like that. So. It, people, if you if you want to come visit the fort and you're taking I-70 or I-68, get off in Cumberland, take Route 28 south. It's about 12 miles south of Cumberland. When you get to Fort Ashby, there's only one light in town. Yes, so just hang a left. At the light, hang a left, and we are on the left about 
oh, two or three hundred yards down the road. You'll see right. the log cabin on the left side. Definitely. Just look for something that looks colonial. You're there. You're there. Well, yep. if, you, if you find the primary school, you found the fort because right. it's right across <laughs> right. the street from That's right. the primary yep. school. That's right. So. And of course, if you're coming from Kaiser, go through the lake. And if you're coming from like Winchester, Romney, Springfield, take a right at the lake. Yes, correct. All right. Well, Randy, we really appreciate your time. This was Randy oh. Crane, curator of the uh, Fort Ashby Museum and the Ashby Fort Museum. It's two different things, right? Ashby's Fort Museum is what we call the entire Oh, okay. Thing. Gotcha. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. But thank you so much. I really appreciate, you know, the opportunity. Awesome. Hopefully we get some uh, some out-of-state folks in here to, to come great. and enjoy this. It's so neat to come in here. Or even in-state. Uh, it's a, it's a sure. nice gym in, the, in this yep. area. Uh, I know there's a lot of homeschooling going on in our state now right. so right you're looking for something to take your kids yeah. it's going to be educational yep help them in their history projects and stuff like that this would be a prime place to come visit and be fun the kids love it and, and we're so close to virginia maryland pennsylvania yeah pennsylvania is a half an hour away right. virginia is about 45 minutes away it's you know close enough that people out of state could come enjoy it oh absolutely and as you said it's not going to break the bank no yep. you go to a lot of these other places it's it's going to cost you this an opening is a cheap way to, to to learn about history of this area an opening day is next friday next friday actually i'm going to say next saturday to be absolutely sure okay i have another commitment on friday and i'm not sure if we have anybody lined up for friday so let's just to be on the safe side we'll, we'll say saturday the 4th all right. will be our opening day. All right. I, we might be open Friday, but I can't. <laughs> Just be on the safe side. Yeah. Just wait till Saturday to come out. Yeah. All right. So uh, we were at Ashby's Fort Museum today, and we want to thank Randy Crane again. And anything you want to add, Jerry? No. Y'all have done a great job. You've done a great job explaining what people can expect to see and the, a little bit of the history of it. Thank you. So, All thank right. You. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please come out and visit or at least check it out online. This has been uh, West Virginia Talk with James and Jerry. I'm Jerry. I'm James. This has been a J&J production.